He Shoots, He Draws is sponsored by the Westcott Rapid Box Switch in association with JP Distribution. Isn't it time you made the switch? Do it today at www.fjwestcott.com backslash switch. Welcome to the He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the show about photography and design, with your hosts, Glenn Dewis and Dave Clayton. Hi, and welcome back to He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the weekly photography, business, creative, whatever we can fit in podcast (laughs) (laughs) with myself, Dave Clayton, and my buddy, Hello, mate. Jewish, hello, all right. <laughs> I'm very good, thank you. Very. Good. I gave you, I gave you a big pause then, just for effect. I know. I, I thought, I thought you'd stumbled, but uh, hello, mate. Hello, mate. Hello. <laughs> um, so, one of the things I wanted to say about these podcasts that, um, as I've been talking to people about them, because we're now on, I think, like episode 34, 35 um, that we've got under our belt, is we both independently come across people in our own worlds because obviously I'm in the design world and Glenn's in photography, and quite often someone will resonate with us and it it can just be one small thing and then as you look into them you think oh actually this person has got a really good story is really interesting I wonder if we can have them on the podcast and more often than not we're right and these are the people that we've you know been lucky enough that we know there's been one or two that like this week is I have no idea who it is but Glenn tell us a bit about how you came across tonight's guest Okay, so, uh, well, first off, the guy that's uh, the main person initially for this particular episode was a guy called David Edmondson, and he's a wedding photographer based out in Texas. And I kind of knew of David for the last few years, but I couldn't really pinpoint where and how I'd heard of David, but I just knew of him. And I remember a couple of years ago now, it was when you and me were in London. There was the Societies, mm. uh, of, Society of Wedding and Portrait Photographers event where I was presenting and I remember walking down in the main foyer area where everybody who's kind of there has entered competitions and all their portrait pictures are all kind of been exhibited. Yeah. And as we're walking down there, I see this guy coming towards me. I'm thinking, that's David Edmondson. And he went to me, that's Glyn Jewis. And we kind of said, hello, how are you? Hello, how are you? And it was a really quick exchange. But I was like, oh, wow, I've met David Edmondson because this guy's, I knew of his work before I kind of knew of him. And... And, I, and what you'll find in this interview, Dave, because I know you haven't actually heard this one yet, is at one point I do, I make no apologies for this, because I do actually say that David has kind of taken what he's doing and the photography and the art of it to, to another level. And I know we take the mick out of that phrase, but I just honestly could not think of anything else to say, because when you see David's work, and I'm ta- his wedding work is stunning. How they yeah. produce the images they do during that kind of a day, I have no idea. But his conceptual renaissance period kind of work is it is mind-blowing so i wanted to speak to him to say look how are you doing this now in the interview what you'll find is that originally i start speaking to to david Mm. but he's also got his son luke who was kind of there to help him out with the recording and what have you but the two of them father and son they're very much a team edmondson photography is both david and his son luke and it ended up a conversation between the three of us so you know there are and it was just brilliant. Again, it was one of those ones I could have just kept going and going and going. But the one thing that really struck me, not only did they talk and explain photography, lighting, and the art of photography in a way that I have never heard it explained before. I literally, I kid you not, I literally was like the bloke on a Christmas carol where he's having to hold his jaw up. I was like, <laughs> wow, I have never heard it explained like that. And it was absolutely fantastic. But also on a personal level, David, uh, when we kind of just before we started recording, I was explaining how, you know, explaining the process of it. And then he's kind of stopped and said, before we do anything, I just want to ask you about your dad. And is everything okay and stuff like that? Now, they wouldn't know what had happened if they're not members of my email group because I didn't post this on social media because yeah. I didn't think it was relevant. And I didn't, I didn't think it was not relevant. That's the wrong word. I didn't think it was appropriate to put it on there. But going back where, well, it would have been around about the, what was, it was the 12th of, um, 12th of August, uh, I discovered that my, my dad had died, okay, and I wasn't told, I found out about it on social media, long story, so, 
you know, not, it's not, it hadn't been the best week. Do you know what I mean? The best couple of weeks. So that's where, and this is my corny side coming out here. That's why I'm really grateful that me and you talk much more because I remember on the day that I'd found out about it, you came over to my house and we were doing stuff and I could have cancelled you, but I thought, no, you're kind of, our friendship is kind of like a medicine. Do you know what I mean? So it kind of took my mind off it and that was really, really cool. So, but it was just, David is such one of these people, and people hear that in this interview now, how everything he talks just comes from the heart, and it is so, so genuine. But what I really loved was the relationship between David and his son. It is absolutely magical. And that, if you, you know, to see a father-son relationship like that is just what everybody would want to have. So that alone was lovely to see, but the information was fantastic. Yeah, well, I can't wait to hear it. So as we record this, I've not heard the edited cut yet. So I'm really looking forward to listening to this one. And I think let's get into it. Let's hand it over to you and introduce him as you always do, Glenn. Yeah, we'll just come into it. And obviously it was David and Luke, but I started off just speaking to David. It was him that introduced himself. So I'll just kick off with David. Who are you? Well, I am a 67-year-old man who is known for loving his family and even his photography. Uh is meant to impact his family, and then secondly, community. Well, well, I, I kind of uh, I've been wanting to get you on this podcast ever since Dave and me started doing this because um, I am aware of I've been aware of you for quite a while actually, and I think it was maybe a couple of years ago that we first met up, mm-hmm. and it was only very briefly. It was in London at the SWPP event, and we kind of it almost seemed like a I know you and I know you kind of thing. But I, I was a very aware of your work and the kind of work I'm thinking of initially for you is this renaissance, this classical painter kind of work. So I really, really want to speak about that. But before we do, I just want to kind of find out a little bit more about you, if you're okay with that, as to say, it's like, you know, how, how long you've been a photographer? How did you get started? Okay. I started in 1974 and I was 22 years old. Um, I left college my junior year to start working for a magazine, and uh, uh, I did it for such a small amount of money. But I, I was—it's interesting. I've been able to do my entire career in photography, which is what I love. But anyway, uh, from doing uh, one magazine, all of a sudden I needed to produce extra income, and so I started a little company in the evenings and ended up doing fifty-eight magazines uh, concurrently. And really, uh, really loved doing magazines. And that actually then went into uh, shooting uh, books and book covers. And that actually uh, then went into shooting uh, CD covers uh, for record labels. So I spent about seven, seven or eight years, you know, shooting uh, pretty much just uh, CD covers. And that uh, then even uh, went into shooting annual reports for corporations and uh, my son, um, in about 2002, joined, and they kept flying us to different cities to shoot uh, different things. And he said, I thought we would be doing life together. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that commercially. And he said, let's start shooting weddings on the weekends. I stuck my finger down my throat and said, gag me with a spoon. Because I was thinking of what weddings were like, you know, yeah. back in the 70s through the 90s. And... Uh, and we always say if you had almost no talent, you might be shooting church directories. And if you had even <laughs> less talent than that, you would be a wedding photographer. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so we've done maybe 1,200 weddings since then, and I love the storytelling. Luke was right. And uh, so we've added that to what we do. Well, okay. So soon as you mentioned the weddings, then, let's have a quick talk about the weddings because I know when I kind of first started out in this whole industry, I think I think it's fair to say you kind of just try everything. I didn't have a clue what I wanted to specialize in. Um, so I was always told that if you don't know what you want to do, go out and do everything and you'll find out what you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, I found out that weddings wasn't my thing because I, I, I'm not a control freak. But I like everything to be kind of nice and steady and, 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 yeah, controlled and stuff like that. So here's you saying, stick a spoon down my throat and make me vomit, think the thought of doing weddings. How on earth have you then, did you turn that around and then start doing them and clearly enjoying them? Well, weddings have changed. And, uh, you know, I had photographed a few weddings. And back in the old days, film was so expensive, you might shoot you know, 160 pictures total, and they were typically uh, things that were very uh, 
almost penguin poses, you know, just uh, everybody doing something official. And uh, anyway, come to find out in, in when it changed uh, in about, what, 2003, um, it was much more storytelling and, and trying to tell the story of, uh, of somebody's life because uh, Luke and I believe that most people don't have a book written about them, but the closest thing to it that tells about the love and the values of a family would be a wedding album. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I've been looking. Obviously, before we get to speak, I've been looking through uh, both yours and Luke's, you know, wedding photography. Mm-hmm. And to me, it is very different. And I'm not just saying this to butter, you know, buddy you up and, and mm-hmm. kind of say just all the nice things. It is. I, do, I look at it. And I just cannot imagine the amount of time and preparation that's gone into that because they literally are, they, they do tell us stories. They have got a real classic look about them. My, my question about that is because weddings are certainly the ones that I've experienced, it's all go, 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 and they want this, they want that, very, very demanding. How do you kind of, um, how do you communicate with the clients, the wedding and the bride and groom, that this is what you're looking to do and this is how much time it's going to take? Well, and my son does this part of it, but in, in advance, as they are coming up with the timeline for the wedding, uh, he stays very much in communication with them, talks to them about options, make sure they put it in the timeline if it's important to them, because if you don't put it in the timeline, it's not going to happen. Mm. you know. And if you prepare to have uh, 10 minutes in your timeline, you probably end up with five. Some, yeah. some of these shots that we take, you know, are just a matter of seconds. But weddings are so predictable that we're able to even visualize what we're going to do so that in just a matter of seconds we can come up with an image. So, so, so what kind of preparation then would you do, apart from seeing the bride and groom prior to the wedding, I would guess at least once or twice at least, mm-hmm. what do you do about preparation for the venue? What, what kind of works for you? Well... After 15 years of shooting the venues, we've been to the same venue so many times that that we don't. There's no preparation time. I, I would say that uh, it's nice to go and, and check out a venue, check out time of day. That's probably what we do most of all is check uh, the sun, where it's going to be, what, when is sunset, some of these things that are important to us to know for lighting. And yeah. Lighting is probably most important to us. Absolutely, absolutely. So then obviously, like I say, I'm looking at your pictures, what you're doing there. Then obviously there's the post-production side of it. And that, as somebody like myself who started out in this whole world on the retouching side of it, and then I've Mm -hmm. progressed into the photography side, it's it's the actual, the post-production of your images that really fascinates me as well. Um, how, How did that come about? I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> my question is, and this kind of links in with your, uh, like the classical artist kind of work, the conceptual work that you do is, my, my, as soon as I look at your work, I think straight away, now, was this guy an artist before he did even photography, a traditional artist, or has he studied art? I did study art. I was going to be a painter, and my sophomore year in college, my faculty advisor said, why don't you take this photography class just so you can really learn how to shoot reference art for your paintings? And uh, like most people, the first day I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. I don't want to paint. I want to do photography. But it still uses the same design, use of contrast, foreground, uh, color palette, all the different things that you would do in painting. But you can then actually conceive it into a piece of photography. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm not surprised. And I'm, I'm glad I asked that there. I can see Luke was behind you giving the thumbs up. Yes, he definitely was an artist. So it's that really does show through in your in the work that you do. So, But what about the actual post-production side of it then, David? How, how has that come through? Because obviously um, Photoshop's involved, I would guess. But who, how are you self-taught with the Photoshop? Is that a combination of you and Luke or...? embarrassingly so i am self self-taught and uh hey, me too hands up me too <laughs> and people die because if i get tired of having so many layers i'll just flatten the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> i'll cut that out don't worry <laughs> so people say let me go see how you went about and doing this but sometimes i do it so fast and so furious instead of having 30 layers there you know yeah. at a certain point i'll just save that and i'll just flatten the whole thing and then go to my next thing and keep going but honestly i I try not to do too much post-production on the wedding things we try to do so much in camera that we don't that we hardly have to do any uh, post-production and to be uh, real honest we we believe in doing more a classical style we believe that some of the things that we're seeing on uh, 
probably Facebook or, or Pinterest and things like that are going to be uh, something that people will not be enjoying as much in five years. Yeah, so it's kind of like it, it does go back to the classic work, doesn't it? That there's work from years ago that we we loved then, we love now, and we'll still be talking about in the future. But you can really tell the digital era, can't you? When that certain kind of look that will it will clearly go out of fashion. But yeah, so kind of just talking about the post processing side of things. Then, as somebody who was has come from an artistic background, somebody who was an artist and studied art. How does that kind of affect how you do your post-production then? Is there anything in particular you think that because I was an artist, I always like to do this to my images because it feels more like art? Well, years ago, I so enjoyed being in the dark room. And my dad, who was also a photographer, really spent time teaching me a lot of the little techniques. And so when I went into Photoshop, I basically pretend like that was my dark room. It was my yeah. digital dark room. And that's really the first... Uh, that was my first way of uh, learning how to use uh, Photoshop. And uh, I'm so self-taught. In fact, I have friends who are self-taught. And when they teach, the first thing they do is, I do not really know Photoshop and put up a big <laughs> sign. And, and that is me. But I've spent 15 years loving it and, and being on it. And um, so, so how long would you say then? Let, let me look at, maybe not your weddings then, because mm-hmm. obviously weddings, as you say, you try to keep them very classical. And, and kind of like that timeless kind of feel to them. But if we talk about the post-production that you do in your uh, conceptual work, the mm-hmm. stuff that obviously is a lot more time that you have there, how long would you typically work on a an image once you've actually got it in the computer there? How long would you roughly think you would kind of work on it? Maybe that's a bit of a how long is a piece of string kind of question. But, um... I, I, would, I don't like uh, spending a lot of time. Uh, I know friends who will spend 40 hours on a piece afterwards. I probably try to spend um, 30 minutes. Uh, now I'll show it to my son, and he'll pick out areas that I need to refine anymore. So, I mean, more and more. And so uh, <laughs> so uh, maybe an hour or two if I'm really trying to get something that will go into image competition or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because obviously, yeah, that's that again. That's how I got to know about your work was through the um, SWPP, and you know, like as you as you're in London, and you're walking through, and you see all the pictures all there on the walls. Stra- you could always see people hovering around your pictures, and it was almost like that. Oh no, he's here this year. And it's- <laughs> You know what I mean? Because it it is absolutely beautiful stuff. And obviously, and Luke as well. I've seen your stuff on the walls there as well. It's just there is a real kind of. Um, it is just beautiful, do you know what I mean? Because people sometimes say with some of the portraits I do, they say it's almost got a bit of a painterly look mm-hmm. in it. But then mm-hmm. I look at yours and I'm like, they don't know what they're talking about. Do you know what I mean? I look, this is what painterly looks like. This is what the classic kind of images look like. Absolutely love it. Can I go back and tell you how that kind of all started? Please, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, art history in college... I don't know if I was asleep or what, but I kind of came away going, I have really learned nothing from art history. And uh, I'd say maybe six years ago, uh, I just said, I need to start really studying this. And we were teaching um, a class in the in the East Coast, and one of the curators for the Barnes uh, Museum uh, was actually in our class, and she started talking to me about uh, some different things that she had learned from uh, Van Gogh, and uh, it just started a quest for me wanting to to learn, and so I kind of started with the Impressionist, and then I said, now where am I going to go? And I just said, I think I want to start maybe back uh, kind of 1400s mm. and and really start there with uh, with uh, uh, some of the Renaissance work that I was seeing or just pre-Renaissance and into that. And so I started studying a lot of the painters. And then for me, because I'm older, it used when we say copy, that's usually a very negative word right yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, what I noticed was there are people in the museums who were literally spending months painting the master's copies Yes, and they yeah. learned so much by just doing little strokes and little things and understanding how translucent to make their paints. And I go, I'm going to study these guys, and then I want to do a tribute image to each one of the one of the artists that I've studied. And so that's why you kind of see a lot of the Renaissance things after different artists. Uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating stuff. It really is. I and mean, there's so much more than just the portrait. So 
when I look at that, obviously there, there is way much more than the portrait. There's the whole kind of scene, the set. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, I mean, what's all that about? How, how does that appear? Is that something that you guys make? or It is. Uh, I was a stage manager in high school. And I right. spent three years uh, working with the theater groups, and so I knew how to build sets just from high school days. And then being a commercial photographer, um, years ago, instead of going to a kitchen, you would probably build a kitchen in your studio. And so I knew how to build sets. And so, and I also, because I'm older, uh, wanted people to understand how they could all do it as a single capture instead of photoshopping things in. Yeah. So I made it my quest to do all of my images as single captures. Wow. Yeah, because I remember that, you know, going back a few years ago, again, somebody said, oh, yeah, that David Edmondson. Yeah, oh, yeah, he's a, he used to be a set builder. I'm like, what? <laughs> all right, so let's get that one out there. You weren't a set builder. I was never been a set builder <laughs> except for some things that I do for my own. No. Wow. But, but I know what it takes. I know what, how film sees things. I remember in television – looking at a desk on a, on a TV set, and I went back to touch it, and they said, oh, don't touch that. It's actually made out of cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, to, but a three-dimensional object then put on something two-dimensional, your eye mistakes it. So I, I understood how much you need to do to, to get away with something. And so, yeah. So many times I would buy uh, things that had holes in them or... or that the rest of the world had uh, discarded, and I went. I can use this for me. Yeah, there's a there's a friend of ours. We uh, we actually had him on the podcast, and this is a guy who's based in Wales. A friend of ours called Ian Munro, and he is somebody. I guess he's almost kind of like he's not. It's, it's very different work to you, but the whole concept there of the building the sets, and if I can get it in the camera, then I'd much rather do that. And I know Ian goes all over the country looking for artifacts and all this kind of stuff, and he spends a long time building stuff. And it is that in itself is just a work of art when you see him building stuff. You know, very very clever. Well, Luke gave me a gift, and we were spending. I think about $20,000 a year in advertising uh, for weddings. And, uh, and basically, Luke said, how many people do you think really have come to us because they see our image in a magazine? I go, probably not that many. He said, well, let's take the same amount of money and let you just enjoy doing what you do, and let's see what you come up with. And that's kind of how the whole project was funded. All right. So when you, when you say when you say Luke said uh, do what you love to do, are we talking there about these Renaissance type pictures Ab- and stuff like that? Absolutely. So in our company, Luke runs the company, and I'm kind of the artist in residence. So Luke is in charge of growing the company, and and uh, and I'm just kind of in charge of the look of the company. <laughs> this this, this is um, that's fascinating. What you say there about doing what you love to do, and then that will draw people in. To see, you know, to see more of what you do, because that kind of makes me think about the the whole personal projects kind of thing, and that's something that I always talk to people about: the importance of having a project and working on images that excite you and keep you enthusiastic and loving what you're doing. So I'm guessing that you're very much in agreement with the importance of personal projects. Well, yes, and um, uh, my dad uh, died uh, 17 years ago, and I had given him a blank book and I asked him to write to the family things that would be important to him and when he died I opened the book and he hadn't written one thing and I realized that I had made up my own way of wanting him to express himself instead of saying dad can you express yourself however you want and so all of a sudden I realized I would not do well at writing either but I can tell stories through my pictures that that are important about the values and the things that I want to pass on to the next generation and to my grandchildren. So that started a whole thing of the these 50 Renaissance images that you're looking at or, or whatever are all stories to my family. Uh, that's my book to my family that tells about the important things that I want to pass on. So each one has a story in itself. Wow. Well, that is, that's, that's, yeah, that's quite powerful. So I have like, for example, a guy smoking a pipe and you can just look at the smoke in the air, and that's all about your time and, and how that our time is just like a little vapor of smoke, and it's here and gone so quickly. So it's not that you should uh, you know, be re- really restrictive, but just remember 
you know, our time here that we live is just like a little vapor of smoke. So just be careful with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, obviously before we started recording this, we had a bit of a chat about certain things that have been happening in my life. And that is really quite powerful. And hearing you say that, that thing there about your dad with the, the pages and not writing anything in. Yeah, that is. Wow. Okay. Let, let's let's talk about let's talk about the way that you and Luke work together because clearly the family and the two of you working together is an incredibly important thing to you anyway I can just because obviously the viewers listeners can't see you but I can I can see you on the screen now how you look when you talk about family there's a certain kind of look that comes across you do you know what I mean clearly very important to you so how how does that how did it all start with you get you and Luke working together again and I guess how how is it now working together how is it mm-hmm well, Luke got his degree in film and thought he was going to go into probably motion pictures or something like that, but uh, ended up coming back to Texas and saying, "I actually, you know what, I want to go back even further. Luke in college was studying medicine and called me one day and, I, and said, I've been rebelling against the arts because that's you know what I've seen in my family, but I really think I would love to kind of examine that so anyway he switched majors and i was so glad because i knew nothing about medicine and it's hard <laughs> to encourage somebody when you're totally naive about a subject <laughs> so anyway so anyway a- after he got his degree we started working together and uh and uh you know what it was both a challenge and and, and a thrill uh, very few fathers and sons can work together well and there's other family dynamics that go into play there and do they go into play with us absolutely just as much as anybody else but i think the bottom line is we both choose to uh, see the best in each other and uh, you know he confronts me on things i i'm able to talk openly with him about things because we know this doesn't affect our relationship because he is my best friend well that is that is lovely to hear Go on, Luke. One thing I'll just interject that might play into what you do, but I think your podcast is called He Shoots, He Draws. So what you should know about my dad is he draws and then he shoots. To get to the crux of where the stories come from, it all starts. So he wakes up in the middle of the night and he has a journal we could bring in here or whatever, but he sketches all the time. And he'll sketch out 50 sketches of ideas. And this happens whether we're on a plane, in a car, wherever. He's constantly sketching ideas, but he, he works through it all. So when it comes time to shoot... It's already all figured out ahead of time because instead of shooting and then drawing or whatever, which I don't think that's what the metaphor is meant to say for for your podcast, but it all begins for him with drawing. It really does. And uh, give him a chance to repeat back however he would want to lead into that question. Do you know what? I'm happy to go with that. Just go with it because that that came out really clear anyway, Luke. I do. And unfortunately, because I'm old, I wake up either, well, Charlie, my little Yorkie, uh, sleeps with me and usually wakes me up about three in the morning to go potty. And at that point, I can't go back to sleep, but I've got 10 ideas in my head. So I literally have a sketchbook just right right beside me in bed, and I just start drawing my sketches just enough so I can remember everything that I'm doing. And then literally I'll draw in textures and color. I'll even draw in how the lighting needs to hit them, and uh, and I'll build it all in my head long before I ever build a set. But, but where do these ideas come from? Do you Because I'm always looking on, looking in books, in magazines, online, just to get all kinds of feed the grey matter. What do you do to get all your ideas then? It's usually something that I hear, uh, something that uh, has kind of a, either a moral value or something that would be important to the family that I want to pass on. It's usually something uh, verbal that I hear. It might be a line that uh, comes out of a movie. It might be just by listening to something on the radio. And I go, the, I want to pass that on to the next generation. The uh, Just what, from what Luke was saying there about our, our podcast being called He Shoots, He Draws, it's, it, was, uh, it was Dave, my co-host, who, uh, who came up with the title there. And it's all because he's a huge f- uh, football or soccer fan. And uh, they have that thing where he shoots, he scores. And that's why it kind of it kind of turned it around. But you're right. Sometimes it could be he draws, he shoots, but it doesn't sound so good. So we go, he shoots, he draws. <laughs> what, what, what we see that I, we think that is a mistake in the industry right now is we see people who don't concept and they just jump in and the, 
the model has a beautiful red dress, and they said, oh, let's go with red. Well, then they didn't think. Well, what would make that sophisticated? Well, complementary colors would be the most complicated, uh, that, so what, we, we need green. And, but how much green do we need so that we can make the red the primary and all these different things? And that's why we don't, li- we don't leave things up to chance. We, we design them way ahead of, way ahead yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. So for so for somebody who had didn't have uh, an art background like yourself, what would you suggest to them? Because clearly that's something there that you've noticed that could change and could be better within the industry and for photographers. What would you recommend they do to kind of get that kind of knowledge? Uh, I think they should carry a sketchbook with them all the time and and start drawing. It doesn't matter whether you have a skill or not. All you all you could just draw a stick figure, you know, and then just and then figure out your foregrounds and even design on how the eye works with design and how it leads it leads in and uh, even just the whole golden ratio, how to design your your sets ahead of time so you make sure that your viewer's eye goes exactly where you want it to to go, mm-hmm. either through uh, uh, where it is on the page, through lighting, uh, through the change in contrast. Go ahead. Luke. Yeah. Okay. Uh, hi, listeners. My name is Luke Edmondson. I'll just introduce myself to your podcast real quick. Um, I'd say the other things that uh, he factors in, it's, it's not just using complementary colors. It's using dual complementary colors, which is a much more sophisticated color scheme, often popularized by Van Gogh and so forth. If you don't know what to do or where to go, it starts with the elements of art and the principles of design. Those are the foundations Uh, And once you understand that, then the next level of sophistication to get into is to understand um, the relationship you have when you create a piece to the viewer, to the person actually looking at your work. And there's two key aspects to that. One is impact, which you hear photographers talk about all the time. But uh, I've heard very few uh, definitions that were actually satisfactory to me. And uh, then the other is subject matter slash subject interest. And essentially, uh, most people, when they give a definition of impact, uh, loosely state that it's the emotions that you're able to create within somebody when they look at your piece. And uh, we've done a whole lot of study on this and have come to the conclusion that emotions and even feelings have nothing to do with impact. Impact is just, well, impact is created through color, it's created through value, and it's created through composition, the arrangements of the objects, and it's equivalent to doing a double take. If you are walking by something, uh, it grabs your attention, and before you even know how you feel about it or what it is, it's Mm -hmm. grabs you. Mm -hmm. That's impact, Mm -hmm. right? The reason why many people's photos fall flat is because their subject matter, subject interest is typically not done in a way that has a universal uh, connection for people. Uh, The typical ones are you might have appeal, uh, you might have sentiment, you Mm -hmm. might have wonder as themes that are are universal. Mm -hmm. And and so what happens is somebody basically says, look at me, look at me, look at me. And so you take time to actually look at it. And then once you do, you kind of walk away going like, eh, like either what about it or that wasn't a good use of my time. You feel cheated. And the way to actually reward somebody for looking is you've got to think about all these things ahead of time so that after you grab their attention, you've put in little nuggets or things that help both slow their eye down as they move through it. And to help them move through. Yeah. And ultimately, they have to be rewarded. The worst thing to do is to feel cheated after you've taken the time to look at something. Yeah. So the, the short answer is you have to build in these things that we call hindrances. Because on the, on the highest level, our eyes, when it moves around a picture, it works on contours and outlines. And it first sees the mass before it then goes in to examine smaller details. And building in hindrances is the way that you slow the eye down in particular points. But when you do it, you have to do it in a way that there's a both logical um, takeoff and landing point. So in other words, if you had a forearm and there's a bracelet, you know that the arm extends underneath because you can see where the arm began and where the arm ended, even though the line is, is not there. That's a, a, an easy example for somebody hearing this. And but a hindrance could be a piece of cloth that goes across the arm that might slow it down as it comes as, as the design comes back up and around. A mistake that we see a lot is people who actually lead people off the page and don't bring them back in. Yeah, so, so it really comes back to understanding the principles of design 
to know how you want to uh, compose this piece, build this piece, and what are the different elements you're going to use, both in a supporting structure and otherwise. And most people we find are technical photographers, and they can't understand why the rest of the world doesn't comprehend their their, their greatness, because (laughs) they'll tell you why technically their lighting is so superior. And their lighting is superior, but their emphasis on lighting is not on creating mood which is the foundation for what you would do from a thematic standpoint of, of having lighting, right? So they're, they're creating a marvelous mechanism, a techn- technological wonder, right? But beyond that, there's not much more. And in our case, when people react to dad's work, the lighting is always sublime and superb, but it is not, first thing you look it's at. not the first thing you look at. Unless exactly. it's Caravaggio, possibly. Well, yeah, I mean, it can yeah. direct, but yeah. I'm just saying, ultimately, the lighting is a supporting yeah. element. It is yeah. not the crux. It should be. That's right. Yeah, and, and you know what? I mean, that, that was incredibly well explained there. Thanks for that, Luke. And, but what I will say is that when I, when I do look at um, the, and I'll say the Renaissance kind of work, the, those kind of pictures, um, there isn't one thing that stands out. When I look at it, I don't go, oh, look at that. It is the whole thing that just kind of absorbs me. And I guess that there shows that the, the and it does stir an emotion. And but I literally just find myself first of all looking at it and going, "Wow, that is," and I can't even verbalise what I feel sometimes when I look at it. Um, clearly, we're going to be putting links to your stuff on the show notes so people can see what I'm getting so kind of you know excited about. But it it is beautiful stuff. It's absolutely beautiful. But what you explained there, Luke, as well that. And I hate to say the phrase because this is one of the phrases we say we don't like to use, but that's taking the photography and the storytelling to a new level. That really is, and I, Dave will kill me for saying that, but we don't. But it, <laughs> but it really, it is. It really is. I mean, I've never heard it explained like that at all before. Um, yeah, that's that's quite something. Now that might lead into this. Almost like this planned. This that might lead into something that I saw on your website. And it kind of goes back to the weddings, but I'm going to kind of put the wedding work, the conceptual work, all as one, because you know the amount of work and the and the quality of it. But there's a woman here called Mary Frances Hurt, who's put something on your. It's a quote on your website. It says, "I love working with them. Obviously, the, the two of you, uh, because of the superior quality of photographs and intentional effort made to understand the heartbeat of each event." What does she mean by that? What does she mean the heartbeat of each event? I, I, so I would say that it, it kind of starts like this. So from a creativity standpoint, if I want my work to be more creative, I can emulate somebody else. But really, if I want to instill something unique in it, it's got to come from our imaginations, mm-hmm. right? And so what we really try and do in getting to know our couples and so forth, we, we're firm believers that some answers are just self-evident, like it'll come out. Uh, but what we need to present them is ways to be able to provide visual depth and to get them to uh, consider, if they will, that these wedding photos or whatever photo we're taking is not really, uh, they're the custodians of them and it's meant for them on some level, but really it's about communicating the the values, uh, the love stories, the legacies, mm-hmm. the relationships mm-hmm. uh, to future generations. And so um, one of the things that maybe Mary Frances was referring to is like we once shot a pair of earrings on a $20 bill, which if you were just to look at it, you'd go, that's a really weird background for a a detail shot. But in that particular case, it was the bride's grandfather whose signature was on that U.S. Treasury bill. And so it was about the history of the family. So so what we always are trying to get them to do, we use the term percolate, Mm -hmm. but we basically say... We want, you, we want to throw ideas out there for you to think on and consider what are ways that we can start providing even more depth so that the pictures aren't just pretty pictures, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's, that's how we try and personalize it to each uh, family. Mm-hmm. And some are more keen on doing things than others. But in general, they always find something that we can incorporate that allows us to, to tell the details a, mm-hmm. a bit more through their personal narrative. Mm-hmm. Because at some point... Uh, just what Luke Edmondson or David Edmondson thinks of is self-limiting, right? But when you're spurred on by somebody else's idea, that opens up uh, worlds of possibilities. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we'll, we'll even ask them to bring some uh, 
uh, maybe wedding photos of their grandparents or their parents. And so let's just pretend like somebody had a rosary and it was their grandmother's. Well, we might actually put that rosary on grandmother's picture so that when they're in the album, they can say, here's where you came from. Here's your grandmother. Here, this, is, this is her on her wedding day. This is how you have your uh, legacy and where you fit into our world. And the same principle holds true when we're doing portraiture or doing conceptual mm-hmm. pieces and stuff. But the real key is, um, so if somebody wanted to figure out how do they do something that's truly unique, because that's always the question, how do I create something that's original when everything's been done, right? It is to, uh, to have to uh, implement or employ your imagination. So like when we do workshops, one of the things we do to frustrate our students is we'll ask a model to come get into a pose. And we'll ask everybody to look at it and to go ahead and start sketching or whatever and so forth. And then we'll turn to the model and we'll say, thank you, and ask them to leave the set. And now they have to do it all from memory. And when everybody looks at the pictures from memory, suddenly they realize that they've all interpreted it much different than they would if they had just done a figure study of the person being there. Because in one, in one case, you're actively seen, but in the other, you're employing your mind. And so in a similar sense, you know, when I think of Van Gogh's bedroom scene mm-hmm. that he painted, which was so famously done... That was his bedroom drawn from memory. And if people think about their own rooms in their house or whatever, and they had to start sketching out and and coloring it in Mm -hmm. and so forth, that's truly unique and original content, even if a room as a picture has been done before. And so it's incorporating things like that, the imagination, Mm -hmm. memory, and so forth is how we instill our uniqueness Mm -hmm. uh, while we use all the same technical elements such as the composition, lighting, posing, and so Mm -hmm. forth. And wow. even even going to things that are self-evident, you know, if you have a wedding couple come over, the, the simplest question you can ask is, how did you propose? And then they look at each other and say, shall we give them the one-minute version or the five-minute version? We know not to ask that. Uh, Luke might say to, to the bride, when was the first time that you called somebody and said, I think this may be the, you know, the right person? And all of a sudden, they're telling a story that their uh, future spouse has never heard before. And, and all of a sudden, uh, all these emotions are coming up because they're he- hearing the love and, and just how they were so attracted. Most of them say, man, I knew on the first or second date that there was something different about this person. Yeah. Another quick example would be asking the groom, you know, when did you start setting aside funds for this ring? Right. Like she knows about the ring. She knows about that process, but she doesn't necessarily know about how he started his whole fun for it. And then you might also, you know, I always say I have a theory that grooms are a bit like moths attracted to a light, you know, but how many times did you look at this ring? Now we don't process it as guys like a, like a girl would, but the, but we know something monumental is about to come. But how many times did you look at that ring before you ever gave it to her? And especially when it's a case where a guy goes, Oh man, so many times I kept like looking at it and putting the box back in the drawer or whatever type stuff you know, type thing. Like that's the stuff that gets a girl's ears going and goes, oh my goodness, I'm suddenly, you know, feeling something around this guy again. And of course they associate those good, warm, fuzzy feelings with you. This is, this is, um, hearing the two of you here talking about this whole process that you go through when you're, I guess, wanting to know more about them and what kind of images you're going to be creating with them. And it also helps to build that bond. What's really standing out to me is that you are doing what you should be doing. You are in the right business for you because weddings are weddings are an incredibly important part in people's lives, aren't they? But I don't know if you find this, but it's certainly something I experienced early on in my career that weddings were, and I'm so, I guess I'm kind of talking here from the UK kind of point of view here. Weddings were seen as a way to make a quick book, a quick book. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, so I remember one guy in particular whose name I won't, I won't repeat his name, but I remember he'd literally just got his camera. This guy had helped me a few times on portrait shoots and he literally had got his camera the week before and he's turned to me and says, I think what I'll do is I'll start to do a few weddings first of all to get some money in before I start doing all the portraits. And I kid you, I lost it. I completely lost it because I put myself in the position of being the groom who'd spent money on a ring and all this time. And then I've got somebody who's coming along who's treating it as a way of making some quick money. And I just, that's one of the reasons I couldn't associate myself with weddings because they didn't, they didn't have a good, um, people didn't look upon them favorably. Certainly in the UK, I would suggest. Yeah, that's, that's no different than in the States. It's the same type of perception as dad said. It was like, if you, 
you did church directories or you did school pictures and then the the next level up or down whichever way you wanted to look at it was wedding photographers yeah. and uh and I in my own experience my first wedding I shot in Shreveport Louisiana for $300 and it was in a barn and my second wedding I did for $350 and I was using my exposure compensation dial in order to adjust exposure and uh I had been shooting outside so I had ended up setting it to negative 2 and I never changed it for the entire ceremony, which I did inside the church, and I shot all JPEGs, which were basically black, oh, no. right? And so they, they, they essentially, for that $350, got no photos of their ceremony. Yeah. But what were they expecting, right? So I, I fully advocate for people knowing what they're doing, especially when you're capturing anything of importance, even a family picture, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter to me what the genre of photography is. Uh, but at the same time, I do understand how we all have some real mistakes we make uh, when we first begin. And uh, basically those lessons that we learn, we go, I'll never do that again. And you finally <laughs> do that about a thousand times and you get to be pretty good and pretty professional and decent. When, when Luke said, let's do weddings, I said, well, how much can you make from a wedding? Like $300? <laughs> and Luke looked at me and said, I think we can make $1,000. <laughs> and so we, the first year we shot eighty. Weddings, eighty-five. Wow! Uh, at a, at a thousand at dollars, and uh, it kept us way too busy. But we learned a lot because we just made so many mistakes. And then I think we said, "Let's go up to fifteen hundred dollars." And we shot one hundred twenty-five. Yeah. yeah, but we we still kept learning. Um, <laughs> and and it was it was because of that groundwork, mm-hmm. that training process. Mm-hmm. That uh, that ended up helping refine us mm-hmm. uh, as far as who we were, and eventually we started growing much more beyond mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. that level. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky. It, it, it kind of says there what you're saying there, but 125 weddings in one year goes back to what you said earlier on, David, about the post processing. You try to keep it minimal. <laughs> I'm not surprised when you're doing 125 <laughs> weddings a year. Wow, you got to nail that on the day. Absolutely nail it. Wow. Okay. Well, that, that's yeah. That's quite something. Listen, one one. Obviously, you mentioned about doing workshops because that was one thing I really wanted to ask you about because I, I did see a picture on online. Um, there was some kind of set being built, mm-hmm. uh, and you're there directing people, David, and what have you. So the, the workshops, Luke mentioned it as well. Are you still doing workshops? I'll answer this real quick. So, so Dad and I have had the the opportunity to speak at many different conventions and 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 do different things we've really resisted the urge of ever doing workshops because we wanted to have something that was unique about what our approach was we did our first one this yeah. year and, very and, first. and this year we did our first one um, i'm not selling this what i'm stating is the historical aspect we, we ended up putting together a uh, a course that was an email course that uh, allowed us to to basically think of, okay, what are the 15 lessons that people, we believe there's a, a gap between the craft side of photography and the art side of photography. Yeah. And, uh, and that most people are placing all their emphasis on craft and really all of the decisions you should be making in terms of craft are informed by the decisions you make on the art side of it. And so because people didn't really have that that framework, that connection point on the art side, that's what we ended up doing for our, our first workshop, which is why we did silly things like, okay, draw this person, and now we're going to take them out of here and make you do it from, from your imagination. They spent the entire first day drawing, not picking up a camera. Wow. And how many days was the event, the workshop? It was, it was a it was a three-day process. And, and so that was the first day was just asking them to draw. And we had different variations of things that we were doing in terms of drawing and sketching, getting their brain going. The second yeah. day, we basically gave them challenges where we took uh, nine essential themes and we gave everybody, we rolled out you know our huge prop closet and brought it all in and divided everybody up into three-person teams because each of them needs to know what it's like to be the photographer, what it's like to be the stylist, and what it's like to be the model. Because you learn so much from each different perspective. And so often as photographers, we kind of just default into photographer mode. And we don't realize how beneficial every other member of a crew can be and or have empathy for the model when we're asking them to be able to do stuff and how important it is to have a clear vision that you can communicate in whatever way it is to people ahead of time to make that shoot successful. 
And, uh, and so we had some members who were able to accomplish eight. I gave them an impossible assignment is what I did, right? Nine complicated shots to do. And, uh, and here, here's your stuff. Now go shopping and make it happen. Right. Uh, and we had some teams that did eight of them and we have some teams that were only able to accomplish three. The irony is on the final day when we did a review of all of the work that was created, the one image that stood out singularly the most was from the team that was only able to create three shots in one day. But the underlying universal aspects of it, the emotional connections, the the quality of that one stood head and shoulders above all the rest. And uh, and the guy who was from Japan who had created it had literally taken an hour just trying to sketch out variations of his ideas before they ever began. And so that's that's what we were trying to teach people was how to bring in that art side to their already considerable craft side to help their work really get to where they want it to go. They don't need another lesson on lighting. They just need to know that lighting creates mood. Yes. And what we had noticed in my studies uh, that kind of started uh, – I was told to study artists before I ever should start studying photographers, and that was my goal. So after that, I started studying photography and came upon a a man named William Mortensen who worked for Cecil B. DeMille in Hollywood and kind of changed how Hollywood uh, did imagery and um, all of a sudden found out that between kind of the purist movement and and his, his opposite movement, uh, it all got lost, and then all of a sudden we went into a world war. Uh, things just happened, and we just lost the whole art side of photography. So Luke and I felt it was very important to give another generation uh, kind of more of a lesson on the art side before it just became totally the craft side. Yeah, I'm going to add this little thing. So I believe that there was an unintentional consequence that occurred, and it had to do with the people that were writing the history books. And essentially, when F-64 crowd, which was Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, mm-hmm. and so forth, became popularized, they were the upstarts against the pictorialists, mm-hmm. right? Now, you can go back even further in America, which the European salons played major roles in the shaping major. of what was going on in American photography at that time. It was all about what was going on in the UK and what was going on in France. France. Like, that was the two, like, everybody looked for. And we've, we've purchased a bunch of manuscripts and periodicals. Uh, in PDF format from that time to go back and do our own own research on. But essentially, the people who wrote the history books in America for photography were friends with Weston and Adams, and they really did not like the pictorialist. And so at that point in time, the emphasis was purely on what can the camera alone do? And, uh, and so it was all about straight photography and not really about uh, interpretation uh, on the back end, which the irony, of course, is that Adams later in his life describes being in the in the dark, dark room, room like being a symphony. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, his zone system, it was impossible to capture all the zones on a sheet of film. Right. Uh, the, the classic idea of pre visualization. The irony is he had to actually hold up the red lens to his eye before he could actually see how he wanted it to look. Right. You know, he couldn't actually in his mind's eye go, well, I could just use a red lens. He had to physically have something there to be able to do it. But but all this stuff gets, you know, uh, permutated over time to where so many people teach art. They even teach style. But what they forget about style is that should be something that emanates from within ourselves, which means it has to be yours. And what they really are doing is they're teaching you like how to copy what they do or what somebody else does. Mm-hmm. And so that those are some of the subtle nuances that we've discovered through this process and basically say, how can we help fix that? Uh, with uh, with today's photographers, mm-hmm. yeah. listen. I, I'm kind of I'm I'm clock watching here. I'm very conscious of time. I don't want to keep you too long. I all I will say is before I forget to say this, we have got to get you two back on absolutely. In, in because this is absolutely fascinating. This is I knew this was going to be good, but this is really absolutely fascinating. So that aside, I will be speaking to you about another date. However, right. I'm going to I'm going to kind of jump forward now and get these two questions in that I want to get and I'm going to I'm going to pose these to both of you actually because um the loves and the loathes which is something that me and Dave already ask uh, we always ask people. So to the both of you and we'll go start with you David. What do you love? You've probably answered this already actually. But what do you love about this whole industry, the photography industry and what you do? Uh family. 
I, I, the world has become my family, and uh, uh, that means so much to me now. And so whether I'm in London or Australia or in the States, uh, it has grown, and there's the sweetest relationships, and it's not... It's not that Facebook person that you don't know, but, you know, that you're trying to connect with. But even that has a tiny bit of merit to it. But uh, my my world has gotten so much larger because uh, just the whole way that the world connects together. And I think the Internet has helped that a lot. But uh, we, we've made friends as we go around and, and go to workshops ourselves or teach a workshop. And uh, that's the most important thing to me is uh, connecting with other other people. I see them as people are very valuable. Yeah. Uh, and my answer would be kind of taking off my dad's chosen expression, idiom, or whatever you want to call it. But it's that uh, our cameras are simply our excuse to love on others and have influence in our lives, right? Um so because of photography, we get privileged to go into intimate relationships or places that we have no business being to do things we could otherwise never do on our own, right? That camera opens a door, both as the voyeur and also as the, the participant, right? And inevitably, so much of what we're trying to do in our photography um, has to do with when we set our cameras down. And are really able to be present in the lives that we're fortunate enough to come across, whether they're clients or other photographers, mm-hmm. whatever. And I think that for me is what's really special is is seeing the picture itself is is a byproduct of an expression of love that's mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. through through the process. And I, I think that's what I really enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. Okay, so on the flip side, and with a positive spin, of course. What uh, what do you loathe, or what don't what don't you like, or what would you change if you could? And David, I'll ask that one to you first. Um, going to Facebook to get affirmation on your images. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It, it will it will send you down the wrong road. It really will. And so, in fact, frankly, I don't think Luke and I really even post that much to uh, Facebook anymore, just because. Uh, it will it will send you astray. I think you do better spending time reading a book than uh, trying to get somebody to get a like. Oh, that is so good to hear you say that. Love it. Okay, Luke, same to you. For me, it's it's along those lines, but it becomes the uh, the polarization or the, the factioning that occurs where it doesn't seem like there's uh, room for different ideas. The the film is not dead movement versus the you know I'm a compositor and you know type thing and and it's like. Uh, people look to tear each other down instead of to build each other up uh, because they are all valid. Every single approach is valid within that. Uh, Now the creativity becomes, how are you going to work within that, right? If your chosen personal preference is to do everything like we do it in, you know, single capture and camera, great. But is that somehow inherently superior to somebody who does everything compositing? No, right? It all comes down to what's the quality of the picture that's created at the end. Now, we can have a discussion about the degree of difficulty. Both have varying degrees and so forth. But but reasonable people should be able to uh, enjoy mm-hmm. uh, other people's styles and genres of photography without it feeling like it attacks them mm-hmm. uh, and undermines who they are in their sense of self. And too often, I feel like I see in various uh, groups that uh, the goal is not uh, always on uh, helping somebody grow as much as it is is about proving that their viewpoint is uh, better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, it's no surprise, really, and uh, the fact that you're mentioning social media is the one thing that you kind of have, you know, a feeling about that it's not really how it should be and it's not best, necessarily the best place to be posting and asking for affirmation because every single person we've asked that question to social media tends to crop up it's it's quite quite incredible so yeah facebook it's got a lot to answer for as facebook you know i think the biggest question is for people to have discernment about who it is that's giving them an opinion yeah right but i'd love to say as an older person i have never seen such an amazing amount of talent in the generation that i'm looking at right now 
when I was able to do 58 magazines concurrently, it wasn't because I was an amazing talent and because there were not that many photographers at that time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I would also say, like, when you were asked to shoot food photography, you'd go, I'm not a food photographer, but they'd still... I I would. They'd go, yeah, but all the food photographers are prima donnas, and we'd just rather enjoy working with you. And so I really realized it was more about relationship and building these little teams together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll make this very fast to be uh, kind to your viewers' time, but uh, you once even struggled. You were shooting for a a soft drink company, and you're going, what's the value of, of taking this picture? And the short, oh, that's an- true. the short answer is he realized the value was the relationship he was having with the art director standing next to him. I go, what's the eternal value of shooting this soft drink? In two hours, you're going to be peeing it out. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that idea in your youth where you're like, I don't know if I can support a product that I don't believe in myself personally, you know, type thing. And <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but I realized it was in the relationship and that I got to connect with an art director all day long. And we, we got to connect and, and made lifetime friendships. Fantastic. We are definitely getting the two of you back on. I'm, I'm so glad that this has kind of ended up being the two of you. Do you know what I mean? Because you clearly are a team. In fact, no, the three of you. The Yorkshire Terriers just there. <laughs> I am so, so pleased that this has ended up the way it has. But uh, we're going to get you back on. But before we finish, just um, where where can you recommend that folks go to to see the kind of work that we're talking about here? Because I'm sure there's many people chomping at the bit wanting to know what on earth we're talking about. Sure. If you're a follower of Instagram, it's David Edmondson, D-A-V-I-D-E-D-M-O-N-S-O-N. Or for myself, it's Luke Edmondson, L-U-K-E. E-D-M-O-N-S-O-N, or you can check out edmondsonphotography.com. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, David, it looked like you wanted to say something then. I'm not going no. to lose this opportunity. In the, in, the, in the Edmondson Photography, where would they go to see some of the uh, Renaissance stuff? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, that's going to be under the, the portrait section, which is under his uh, fellowship with the SWPP. So I'll make sure I make that real easy for people to find. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, I very much look forward to the next time I get a chat. But, guys, thanks so much for your time. Obviously, there's a bit of a time difference there. But, David, Luke, thank you so, so much. Thank you. All right, so as you can see, that was pretty much the end of the interview there. However, once we'd kind of finished officially... The three of us kept on talking. There was me, David, and Luke, and some of the stuff they came out was gold. And at one point, we're going for another five, ten minutes, and I said to Luke, Luke, please tell me you've not pressed stop and you are still recording. He went, oh, no, no, I'm still recording. So that's what I want to put in now because you probably already heard the information that came out is absolutely brilliant. I didn't want you to miss out on this. So let's now roll the rest of what we talked about once we'd officially finished. Brilliant. That, that... That was fantastic. I could listen to you two for ages. <laughs> but I have never heard it explained like that ever. It is, that's brilliant. And I mean what I said, when it, that you're doing what you should be doing. You are definitely in the right... Because be, you're, if I knew somebody who was getting married, I would want to recommend you because you are so clearly into it for the right reasons. It's lovely to see. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. You know, uh, I'll have to send you some of the... Uh, some of the stuff even from the UK and, and so forth of just some of the controversies that were going on in the late 1800s and uh, my classic story. Uh, so my sister got married at Cowley Manor, which is near uh, Oxford. And, uh, and yeah. And so being able to be there, and of course, Lewis Carroll was his pen name, but you know, he was a wet plate photographer before he uh, wrote Alice, wrote in, Alice Wonderland. in Wonderland. But the irony is that dry plate photography had come out. So now it was much more easy, accessible. Anyone could be a photographer now, uh, so to speak. And so he decided that with the technology change that, you know, he was going to get out of photography. And of course, thankfully, he went on to to write a bestseller, you know, and so things worked out for him. But it's just funny to see that like the same conversations that we have come up today. Should you be mirrorless versus whatever? Whatever, all this kind of stuff. It's been going on for ages and the only thing that uh, that I would say the people in the 1800s and early 1900s had an advantage over us in is that they had more of an understanding of the arts 
even though many of the original people in photography were all from the scientific side. Luke, oh. please tell me you didn't stop recording. No, no, no. no I'm Fantastic, sorry. I've got that on there. <laughs> That's going in. <laughs> with, with what happened with, with photography, you know, people who didn't have money uh, could finally afford to have maybe one photographic portrait made in their entire life. Otherwise, people, when they died, they go, I'm starting to lose my memory of what they looked like because we had yeah. nothing to capture them unless they were wealthy. And so anyway, so with the advent of photography, uh, it was very scientific back then. But again, they ended up studying under the same teachers that were from the art galleries mm-hmm. uh, th- throughout France and, and England. Yeah. And I'll add this to you. So, you know, we think of Van Gogh, we think of his use of color, right? And what the irony is, is he was pretty much a black and white only uh, sketcher, right? And painter. Uh, that's all he did, you know. And he grew up, so his background, real quick, it was just that his family sold art, his, his uncles and so forth, and he was an art buyer and so forth, selling art, um, you know, and so forth, and uh, decided to go into being an artist himself and things like that. But he wrote his brother Theo, and he basically said, if anybody can, like, give me any insight on color. Like, I so struggle with color. I don't even know how to do it. And at the time, that's when there was a French gentleman who had invented the color wheel. So for the first time, there was a way to understand complementary colors and how the colors work together and so forth without just having it be intuitive. And uh, and it was that um, insight, that reading, that treatise that really helped him finally become the painter that we know him as today. And we all associate him, you know, with color. In a similar way, there were other uh, painters as well that uh, I'll send you one that was a a classic guy who created this painting that uh, was done on his patron's wall. And he did it all in one day. And it's it's a remarkable work of art, a Spanish gentleman. But the irony was, the only reason he could do that is because he furiously practiced speed drawing every single day for an hour. And so when his client called on him and said, I need you to do a full masterpiece in one day before I have a party tonight, (laughs) he was able to pull it off. And when people look at it, they think that it was about the, it was a Spanish war type shot. They think that the guy is bleeding, but there is no blood. It's just how he used the color red within the image itself that's suggestive of the fact that there's somebody bleeding. So there's so many things you can suddenly discover. That's fascinating. And we also begin to understand why it is that Impressionism began because there wasn't a reason to do realism anymore once photography yeah. had come around. Yeah. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> what thank can I you. say? Thank you very much. You've blown my mind. I don't think I'll be going to bed too soon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>